In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In most of the European countries I know, fireworks are characteristic of the new year. Britain, however, typically is outside the Euro firework zone, and for us, November the 5th is firework night. Now, I'm sure most people will know that this is in commemoration of the so-called gunpowder plot of 1605, when a group of Catholic conspirators, seeking to overthrow the Protestant King James I, or James VI if you're Scots, planned to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Until 1859, there were special services for this day in the Book of Common Prayer, giving thanks for the nation's deliverance from, quote, the most traitorous and bloody intended massacre by gunpowder, unquote. And the calendar at the Book of Common Prayer until 1859 said on November the 5th, Papist Conspiracy. When I was at my junior school in London, that was in the 1950s, the account we were given of the gunpowder plot was essentially in line with this way of describing the conspiracy. Catholics, we were told, by their allegiance to the Pope, were of very doubtful loyalty to the monarch and the state from the time of Henry VIII onwards, because they believed the Pope had jurisdiction over Europe in a way that made it very difficult to be both a committed Catholic and a loyal Englishman. From time to time there had been Catholic plots to overthrow the state, and the gunpowder plot, we were told, was one of the most significant, threatening the whole future of Britain as a free Protestant country. The conspirators thus thoroughly deserved to be executed as traitors. My daughter attended a Catholic junior school in Abingdon, where we live, run by the Sisters of Mercy, most of whom were Irish. The narrative she was told was not surprisingly strikingly different. Catholics had been persecuted in England since the start of the Reformation and wrongly regarded as traitors. When James I continued the anti-Catholic policies of Elizabeth I, it was too much and the conspirators made one last desperate attempt to save England for the Catholic faith. My daughter wasn't told they were right to try and blow up Parliament, but it was made clear to her that it was a very understandable reaction to state persecution, and that the blame strongly attached to King James. The gunpowder conspirators should be seen as martyrs, or at least almost so. There was a bit of debate about who the guy was that was burned, and there was some suggestion that it might be Thomas Cromwell left over from the earlier a time, so that there was a sort of illusion of just what we were celebrating. Now, these two narratives summarise in brief different interpretations of Britain's religious history, and they are narratives that greatly influence the thought patterns of many English people even today, even if they know hardly anything of the gunpowder plot, and, as it were, couldn't rehearse the narrative in either version themselves. Ecumenical relations between the Anglican and Catholic churches are not good at present. Commentators have spoken of an ecumenical winter. There are many bones of contention at the moment which I won't rehearse, but underneath there is a memory of what happened in the 16th and 17th centuries which colour the mood in which interchurch discussion uh, in Britain is conducted 
even for those who may not be consciously aware of it. We could describe it as a matter of disagreement over our respective martyrs. The Martyrs Memorial in St Giles commemorates the Protestant martyrs of the reign of Queen Mary, who tried to restore Catholicism and burned bishops of the Church of England in Broad Street, where you can see a cobbled cross in the middle of the road opposite Balliol. Campion Hall, just down St Aldate's, commemorates Edmund Campion and other Jesuit martyrs butchered under Elizabeth I as traitors for trying to turn England back to Catholicism. However little we think of them today, the blood of these martyrs lies between the Catholic and Anglican churches and sometimes make it sit hard for us to embrace each other as fellow Christians. Once a cause has a martyr, it becomes hard for people to abandon it, as we see all around us in so many parts of the world today. Northern Ireland stands, of course, as a recent example of the corrosive effect of clinging to one's martyrs, but the extreme difficulty of not doing so. So how can we celebrate our martyrs without poisoning the future of the churches? One way is to try to accept each other's martyrs. The modern Church of England calendar includes some of the Catholic martyrs of the Reformation period. And in the university church you'll find a plaque which lists the martyrs on both sides of the dispute, all honoured for their faith, for their commitment to their faith, irrespective of which church they belong to. In a tolerant society we can go on affirming our own martyrs and yet respect those with whom at the time we would have been at enmity. This is not the same as regarding the matters which divided them as essentially trivial, so that we can complacently look back and think of them as just deluded by the rhetoric of their own side. The differences between Catholics and Protestants weren't trivial and aren't trivial, though we may hope they will never again lead to that kind of bloodshed. But true ecumenism is not a matter of general niceness in which we simply aren't bothered by the things that divide us. True ecumenism means recognising that our differences matter and trying to deal with that. But how is this to be done? Well, the excitement has gone out of many discussions between the different churches as compared with, say, the 1960s. On the positive side, the approach then was to try to identify the huge areas on which the churches agree and to affirm those and that has continued with a lot of success. We no longer treat each other as not really Christians at all, and that's a huge gain. And indeed the steam has gone out of the discussion, partly because it's now so widely accepted that all Christians share a central core of beliefs. Indeed, many of us now think of ecumenism on a wider front and look for things we have in common also with non-Christians. Many people now are looking for common ground among the three major monotheistic faiths, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, and it's perhaps never been so important to do so, not to mention seeking also for common ground with the great Eastern religions, and come to that with people who don't believe in God, but share so many values with religious people. Ecumenism in the older sense has partly faded just because it succeeded. The nuns who taught my daughter in the 70s and 80s 
was still a bit surprised that an Anglican clergyman sent his child to a Catholic school. I think today they would not even be surprised, but already then they embraced us as their fellow Christians, for example, attending our daughter's Anglican confirmation. The fact that that wasn't remarkable, where a hundred years ago it would have been unthinkable, shows what has already been achieved. But the other strand in the ecumenical movement was to try and identify the areas of difference and argue them through. And that has not succeeded at all. What happens when you have these discussions is that small groups of very ecumenically minded people who on the whole agree fairly much already get together and then find agreement on some contentious issue. But their findings are then rejected by both the churches they represent. Such groups tend to become a sort of pseudo-church of the like-minded, detached from both of their parent bodies. And that's been very much the fate of ARCIC, the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission. But one reason why it's so hard to get real agreement between churches on the things that still divide them is precisely tribal loyalty, or we could say loyalty to the martyrs. How can we give up beliefs for which those we honour gave their blood. These things operate at a level below the purely rational. Our witness to our own faith is tied up with the history of that faith and with the people in its history that we admire. And the attempt to argue through beliefs and convince others has on the whole not succeeded in relations between the churches. But does that mean there's no hope for reconciliation? I would be sad to think that. A new style in which Christians can relate to other Christians who are separated from them has emerged in recent years partly thanks to an an initiative at the University of Durham going by the name of receptive ecumenism. Receptive ecumenism. In this we don't ask how we can persuade you that we are right since that is so often a lost cause. Nor on the other hand do we throw in the towel and pretend we think you are right just for the sake of peace. What we do is to look for things about your beliefs or practices from which we can learn. What have you discovered that we have still to discover, we ask of other churches? What have you discovered that we can incorporate into our system to our advantage? In a way, you could say that the Oxford movement in the 19th century, that one might say started here in Oriel, was an example of receptive ecumenism. People like John Keeble and John Henry Newman, while he was still an Anglican, saw important aspects in the witness of the Catholic Church that they came to believe Anglicans had lost sight of and should return to and learn from. They said, we are not going to become Catholics, though Newman, of course, eventually did so, but our Anglican faith should learn from some of what the Catholic Church stands for. Particularly at that time, it's greater detachment from subservience to the state. Something is being witnessed to here that we could do with naturalising within our own communion. Now, nearly all the churches nowadays practice this kind of receptive ecumenism, borrowing each other's prayers and hymns and practices and trying to learn from each other's insights. And to me, I think, this is where the future of ecumenism lies, not in a rather hopeless and infinitely time-consuming quest 
for structural unity by arguing through all our differences. But in seeking to see the beauty in each other's distinctive ways of being Christian and trying to learn from it. All this sounds extremely churchy. Most of us don't spend our time in thinking either positively or negatively about each other's churches, which can easily turn into a time-wasting and not very healthy hobby. We spend our time in trying to live our ordinary lives, focused on quite other matters. Work, relationships, families, interests, plans for the future. But receptive ecumenism has the advantage that in the end, despite its technical sounding title, it offers insights precisely into how we can live these ordinary lives. With people we differ from, and after all we each differ from everyone else in some way or other, with people we differ from, it's a real expression of our common humanity not to ask how we can convince them to be more like us, but to ask whether there are ways in which we'd be better if we were more like them. I don't mean that we should mimic other people superficially, as the young men of Oriel in the 1830s are said to have tried to walk and talk like the charismatic Mr Newman. Terrible thought. I mean something much deeper, getting to see what makes our friends and indeed our enemies tick, and asking whether we can learn from it something that will enrich and improve our own way of living. What is there to admire in you from which I could learn to be a better person, and that I wouldn't have discovered on my own if I hadn't met you? That's essentially the question receptive ecumenism asks, and it's applicable quite generally to everyday life, not just in the little world of interchurch relations. We learn from the people we meet how to be better people ourselves, or we can if we open ourselves to that possibility. And it's that that offers hope for the human race and helps us to transcend our tribal loyalties. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.